I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas Legislature. This week, the outage and the outrage. What the hell just happened? That's the big question on the minds of everybody in and out of Texas. The winter storm last week that resulted in millions of us having to endure no power, no heat, no water in persistent sub-freezing temperatures will go down alongside Hurricane Harvey in the disaster annals. The difference is that a hurricane is a natural disaster. Charitably, what we just experienced was man-made. In 2011, we suffered through a similar storm that highlighted the deficiencies in our means of providing power to most people in most places in the state. Infamously, Texas has its own electric grid, distinct from those that power other parts of the country. A decade ago, cold weather froze natural gas wells and affected coal plants and turbines, leading to widespread outages. As my Tribune colleagues Aaron Douglas, Kate McGee, and Jolie McCullough recently reported, Texas politicians and regulators were warned after the 2011 storm that more winterizing of our power infrastructure was necessary. The large number of units that tripped offline or couldn't start demonstrates that the generators did not adequately anticipate the full impact of the extended cold weather and high winds. Regulators wrote, more thorough preparation for cold weather, they said, could have prevented the outages. But Texas did nothing, or next to nothing. We had 10 years to plan, and failure to do so allowed last week to happen, cost an untold number of lives, and what will be tens of billions of dollars at a time when our economy is hanging on by a thread. Who or what is to blame? Is it the legislature for failing to heed the warnings? Two different governors over the last decade since the person at the top of the org chart is responsible for everything? Perhaps the fault resides with our black box of a grid operator, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT for short a nonprofit entity that seems comically named, since if you promise reliability, shouldn't you be, you know, reliable? My guest this week, Michael Weber, has thoughts about all of the above. The Josie Centennial Professor in Energy Resources at the University of Texas and the author of two books about power, he's an acknowledged expert on such matters. The guy not just journalists, but elected officials call at moments like this to explain what they're seeing. With legislative hearings about the storm a few days away, he was kind enough to share his hot takes and cold hard facts on the morning of Monday, February 22nd, day 42 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by the Catania Foundation, the Energy Foundation, and the Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation, and by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Proud to support this conversation because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. So are we ever gonna know what happened actually? Will there ever be a set of facts and conclusions that we all agree on? Or is this going to be like everything else these days, politicized to the point that there's no common understanding of the problem or embrace of the solution? 
I think we will establish a common fact base over the next few months. There'll be investigations. In fact, a lot of the common facts are already known. And so a process will happen partly through courts. There'll be lawsuits, that kind of thing, but also just the normal investigations that happen whenever there's a crisis. And those investigations will reveal a lot of information and there will be a common fact base. At least that's what's happened after 2014 with the polar vortices in the Midwest and 2011 with our blackouts in Texas and after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, there is a common fact base. There will also be politicization. There'll be these other factors. And that happened first, actually, before the facts are out, people are already ready to point the blame on someone. And the facts will slowly maybe clarify or rebuke some of those early accusations, depending on what the facts show. But because there's so much money at stake and because there's such big players involved, there will be some time. It takes a few months, not years, months. Um, and we'll get to the root of what happened, like a root cause analysis of the sequence and what happened when. But aren't there obstacles created again back to politics by people in office, people's own self-interest? You know, it's like there's facts, but you don't want to see them. You don't want to acknowledge them. You look for any other thing to explain it that aligns with the conclusion that you had before you even did the investigation. Isn't that always how these things go? I mean, maybe I've just become so cynical that I've written off the possibility that we're ever actually going to know what happened or agree on what happened. This is a great point, and I feel like things are more political now than a decade ago when we had our blackout. That blackout also happened during a legislative session. Right. Because it happens during a legislative session, you get different kind of responses. You get emergency hearings. We actually have now competing emergency hearings, competing investigation announcements, this kind of thing. Everybody wants to sue or investigate. So that clouds the process. But in 2011, it did go through a routine that calmed down after a little bit, after the finger pointing ended, as power came on and things thawed, people calmed down and cooled off a little bit, so to speak. And we got to a report later that year, uh, there were reports by DOE and FERC, that's Department of Energy and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, as well as our local authorities, that were pretty even-handed and reasonable. So I, I have a feeling if the decade ago was any indicator of what will happen this time, we will get to that point. Now, politics has changed the last decade, so maybe it'll right. be hard. And for sure, what you said, the people start with the conclusion and then go look for the facts to support their conclusion. But the root cause analysis, these investigations that follow legal proceedings that have uh, requirements for evidence will go forward. They'll ask the question, then answer it, rather than answer it, then look for what question they were asking. Well, let's acknowledge that even in the case of the FERC report 10 years ago, we were told do these things and then we didn't do these things. And so, you know, even having that report doesn't mean that things are going to change, right? That's okay. that. just, just because we agree on the facts doesn't mean we're going to take action. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So unlike many people weighing in on this on Twitter, on cable news and elsewhere, you actually know what you're talking about. So what is your top line version of what happened? Big picture. What is the elevator pitch that kind of run into somebody in a line at the supermarket? If they say what happened, what is your top line? The top line is we did not winterize our energy system properly. We did not prepare for weather like this, even though we shoulda, coulda, and we had a decade to do it and we didn't do it. The second subtitle is everybody failed us a little bit, but gas failed us the most. Yeah. Yeah, I wanna get into all of, all of that, the details of all of that, but I'm hearing you say shoulda, coulda. So you believe this was avoidable. You know, we don't control the weather. I mean, I have to remind people there's a limit to how much we can control. We can't control everything. We can't control the weather, right? We cannot control the weather. We can do our best to predict the weather. And I think this is where we had a major, a major failing, which is the weather we're using 
to design our systems is usually the last hundred years of weather. Like we look backwards a hundred years and say, how hot did it get? How cold did it get? Or how wet, and how dry? And we use the last hundred years of weather to plan for the future, which is a fundamental flaw because what climate science tells us is that the future of weather will be different, that there'll be more intense and frequent extremes, both hotter and colder and uh, windier and more still and drier and wetter. And instead of planning for the future of weather, we're planning on the past of weather and that's a fundamental flaw. These freezes, which used to happen every few decades, look like they might happen every decade or even more frequently. And we need to plan for that in our system. And if you plan for cold snaps happening more often, the economics or the cost benefit analysis of whether it's worth yeah. it to winterize will be very different. So then it's not either or, it's not either this is all the weather's fault or this is all our fault. It's possible to be both. Statesman's editorial on Sunday, uh, weekend after the storm hit, said an act of nature compounded by the failures of man. That is acknowledging both. You'd agree with that? Absolutely. So this was nature, but we have a role in accelerating nature with our carbon right. dioxide emissions. And then we have a role in ignoring nature if we choose to do so, which looks like we've done. We have ignored what the weather trends might be for our planning. Right. Yeah, so that's, absolutely. That's the failures of man part, right? Absolutely. That's, that's it. So I want to start talking about the details of this. And let's begin with the interesting topic of wind power, which has consumed so much of our attention this week. There's been a lot of talk about the degree to which wind underperformed and the degree to which that then contributed to the widespread outages. There was this really interesting graphic in the New York Times that showed Texas power generation during the storm, and it showed natural gas, coal, wind, nuclear, and solar, and the degree to which each contributes under normal circumstances as a percentage of the overall portfolio, and then how did they all do over the last you know, seven days or so, you know, the, the, the early part of last week in particular. And something that I confess, even as somebody who thinks he knows a little bit about this stuff, I did not know, is that natural gas as a component of the portfolio was somewhere north of 40,000 megawatt hours prior to the storm hitting. Wind was under 10,000 megawatt hours. So for all this talk about the impact of wind, natural gas represented pre- storm more than four times what wind represented, right? Am I reading this correctly? You are reading this correctly. So in Texas, we have a gas dominated grid. Gas yeah. over the course of the year is about 50% of our electricity. Coal is about 20%, nukes about 10%, wind and solar the other 20%, uh, plus yeah. or minus a few percent. And so we have a gas dominated grid. We have a fossil fuel dominated grid. We have a thermal dominated grid, if you include nuclear, meaning the heat-based power systems. Wind uses flowing air and solar uses photons rather than heat. And so 80% of our grid comes from heat, 50% from gas in particular. Now that's over the course of a year. Wind is more than 20% of our energy in the fall and the spring, less than 20% of the summer and less than the winter. In the summer, wind is a smaller portion because our demand is so high for air conditioning. In the winter, wind is a smaller portion because the, it's not as windy in the winter. And planners know this. They know that wind changes by time of day and time of year and also by location. West Texas wind is different than Panhandle wind is different than coastal South Texas wind. And that planning is part of the process. So we don't count on much wind in the winter because we don't expect much wind. We generally don't need much wind either, so it's not a big deal. So you think there's something disingenuous? I'm, I'm saying that, not you, but I'm asking, is there something disingenuous about people placing blame on wind in this case, in part because 
we know enough to know that at a time of year like the one that the storm hit, we aren't expecting wind to contribute even what it contributes at its height, right? You, you are correct. It is disingenuous to say that wind or failures of wind brought the grid down. Uh, wind had its problems. There were certainly wind turbines that iced over, so we lost some capacity right. we would have liked. So wind could have done better and should have done better. But what we count on in the winter is really natural gas and coal and nuclear, and they failed to step up. In fact, they were collapsing at certain moments when the grid was really in a precarious situation. So yeah. it is disingenuous to blame the failures of the grid on wind. That doesn't mean wind is blameless. Wind has its problems. Right, but wind itself, if everything else had held and wind had done what it did, wind would not have taken the state down. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Wind, uh, if wind had performed the way it did, everything would have been fine if everyone else had performed the way we expected. But, but, that, but that didn't happen. That um, did not happen, absolutely. All this dunking on the Green New Deal, which last time I looked isn't even an actual thing, right? How do you blame something that at this point is still just words on paper? I think this is absurd in a couple of ways. One is it's absurd to blame a future policy on past decisions, right? Green New Deal is a concept. It doesn't exist in any state. It does not exist at the federal level. Right. So to blame some notional future policy concept for the decisions we've made over the last decade or decades is really ridiculous. Another thing that's ridiculous about it is Texas's grid is independent. For the most part, we make our decisions locally. We live and die by our own decisions in Texas, and unfortunately, too many people died. And to blame out-of-state policymakers is pretty funny because they have no say on our in-state policies like the grid. A third aspect of this is the Green New Deal sort of code for liberal policymakers and that kind of thing. But yeah. Texas has been under conservative control for decades. Liberals aren't running the grid or forcing policies on Texas against our will. There was a collaboration between, De between Democrats and Republicans in the late 90s around deregulation and some renewables mandates that passed a Republican legislature and was signed into law by Governor Bush. But it's not like liberals are sneaking the Green New Deal in when people are looking. So this is absurd on so many levels and really is a distraction from the core problems. Well, again, this gets back to the idea that everything is political and everything can be politicized. And it's code, right? If we say the Green New Deal, it's code. People would rather you think about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and not think about ERCOT. Absolutely. Right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Green New Deal is code for out-of-state liberal policymakers or AOC in particular or Californians or something like that, right. even though they're basically irrelevant for Texas policymaking when it comes to our energy. Yeah. Now, let me ask the inverse of this. Would the Green New Deal, if it had been in effect, have prevented this, right? Many have said over the last week that this ladders up to climate change being a real and present danger. And the longer we fail to address it, the more we put our economy and our energy future and ourselves at risk. David Leinhardt in the Times today noted that we're not just creating a problem for ourselves. He said on a national level, Texas politicians have played a central role in preventing action to slow climate change every place, right? So to what degree is this just another log on the fire of we're putting off dealing with climate change? So the, the Green New Deal has become sort of a caricature for many people where it's synonymous with more wind and flimsy renewables and that kind of thing. Yeah. But the Green New Deal is several things. It is partly an expansion of renewables and maybe more wind would have helped or maybe not, depending on how the wind performed. But there are other, other elements to the Green New Deal. One is to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, which I think would help because we have an exacerbating weather situation right now from what's happening with climate warming. So it would help from that perspective. 
But the other element of the Green New Deal is modernization of the energy infrastructure. And that would certainly help. It's not just more renewables, it's more technologies, it's more storage, it's uh, better controls. And all those things are things we really could have used. So there are elements of the Green New Deal that probably would have helped. And there might be some elements that maybe would have helped or maybe were real relevant, but it's hard to say exactly. But the Green New Deal has become this sort of synonymous cartoon, like I said, for AOC or just wind. And that's not really what it is to my knowledge. Yeah. So just to, just to be clear, do you associate what we just saw last week with the byproducts of climate change? Is this sort of another argument for trying to deal with that? I think, yeah, climate change is absolutely part of the story. And who knows if this storm was because of climate change or if it was worse because of climate change. But climate science tells us storms like this will become more frequent and yeah. more typical and more intense. Basically, the Arctic cold front moved 4,000 miles south. It's not supposed to do that in normal situations. And we're right. told because of a weakening jet stream, because of climate warming and Arctic warming, this will happen more often. So, yeah, this we have to build climate science into our planning. This is our heads up. It's our warning. As if Hurricane right. Harvey and the freeze a decade ago weren't already warning enough, right? It's yet another data point. Right. Yet another instance of extreme weather. C can I ask you again, because you understand the mechanics of this, and I mean the mechanics literally, People said in response to the complaints about frozen wind turbines, well, there are states all over the country that have cold weather consistently that are powered by wind. I think Iowa was called out at one point, right, as a state that has as much of a commitment, if not more of a commitment, to wind power as we do. Last time I looked, Iowa was pretty damn cold, right? And there are places around the world that rely on wind power that are colder on a regular basis than Texas. And yet they don't seem to have the same problem of frozen turbines and outages. Absolutely. Like the North Sea is cold and wet. So as people say it's the cold weather that hurt the turbines or it's really the cold, humid air because it's the humidity that freezes to form the ice. And right. these are challenges for wind turbines, but they're challenges that have been solved. In fact, you can buy a cold climate package from Vestas or Siemens or GE, the wind turbine manufacturers will sell you this equipment, this package to let your turbines work in a cold environment. And there are a couple of things that happen. Uh, you can have different uh, materials for heating inside the nacelle. The nacelle is the, the equipment at the top of the wind turbine tower. Um, you don't want your gearbox oil to freeze. You can have heaters, you can use different oil. You can have, uh, you have worries about ice on the blades. So you can have um, de-icing capabilities or heaters on the blades or different ways to get rid of the ice or prevent the ice from building up. You can prevent things from locking up in the inside the nacelle itself where the gearbox is. And we don't invest in that in Texas typically because it costs another few percent, anywhere from like two to 10% at the time of construction to put the cold climate package in. And that's, so we just don't do it because we don't think it's going to be cold very often. But then it is cold often enough to maybe justify it. The other challenge is some of that cold climate package, like some of that equipment, the heaters or the different things you need to prevent problems when it's cold, take up space in the nacelle at the top of the turbine tower. And that space means if it's filled with other equipment, means it's harder to shed heat in the summer. So you get better performance in the winter, but you might have a little bit worse performance in the summer. So this is the trade-off we have to make with wind turbines in Texas. You absolutely can winterize. We already have around the world. It costs a little more upfront, but then you get better performance through the winter but maybe worse performance in the summer. And I think what's happening is when our developers make the analysis, the cost benefit analysis, costs a few percent more, not worth it. It's really cold, but it's actually cold more often than we think. So they probably need to rerun the numbers. Yeah. Uh, hey, Michael, I want to ask you about nuclear uh, power. Uh, yesterday, Senator John Cornyn tweeted, nuclear power in Texas mostly stayed online during the blackouts. And you responded 
to Senator Cornyn, 25% of its capacity was offline because of failed equipment at the depth of the crisis. What's going on here? What happened with nuclear? I did hear about the South Texas plant at one point, one of the nuclear facilities in Texas was offline for a while and that that, it was said, exacerbated the problem that we were having. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So if you look at a power plant, the core of the power plant, if it's thermal, a thermal meaning it uses heat, that's usually natural gas, coal, and nuclear. They use heat to boil water to make steam, and that steam spins a turbine to spin a generator to make electricity. At the core of these power plants, it's very hot. They don't care if it's cold outside. In fact, they perform better if it's cold outside. Yeah. But around the core of the power plant is a bunch of equipment, sensors and meters and pumps and compressors and all sorts of things. And those can freeze. And that's the case for the South Texas project. A water pump froze. And because the water pump froze, they could not move water safely. And because of the safety measures and nuclear, they'll turn off. They don't take the risk if they think water's not moving the way it needs to. So right. a frozen pump, which is frankly one of the, I would say it's cheap, but it's much cheaper than the reactor core. It's these cheaper parts on the outside that tend to fail before the heart of the facilities. It froze. It turned off one of the plants. We have two nuclear facilities in Texas, Comanche Peak and South Texas Project. Each facility has two reactors. One reactor, South Texas Project, turned off. So one of our four nuclear power reactors turned off. We lost 25% at the peak of the crisis. It was off for a couple of days. I think it's back on and has been for a day or two. And so yeah. this is a challenge. What you're seeing with John Cornyn's tweet is he was retweeting someone else. The nuclear industry and others are saying, hey, you can trust us. We're reliable in a pinch. We mostly stayed on. And people like me say, okay, well, 75% is not, I mean, it is a majority, it's more than 50%, but it's not the performance you promised or that we expect from nuclear. Well, it's not perfect. And again, back to your yeah. earlier point, this was a failure on a whole bunch of different fronts, right? It wasn't yeah. just one thing, it was a bunch of things. So you, you again, nat natural gas. So let's, let's talk about gas for a second. You and I talked last week, I called you because that's what everybody does. They call you and they say, what's going on here? And so I called you and I said, what's going on here? And you said, this was, I'm quoting back to you now your words. This was a spectacular failure of natural gas. We have a shortage, period. The severity of the shortage was much worse this last week than what we saw 10 years ago. True? True. Okay. I explain. still believe what I said. Explain. So there, there are a couple of things. One is, by the way, uh, people are mad at me because they feel like I'm criticizing gas, which is core to our identity as a state. And, I, and I'm a fan of gas. So I'm frustrated that gas failed to step up and deliver. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of things that happen with the gas system in Texas. One is we've been producing gas in Texas longer than many places. So it's not unusual for us to have older equipment, gathering lines and like a spider web network of pipes above ground exposed to the elements in places like West Texas. And they can freeze. They're not necessarily insulated. In a place like North Dakota, you would probably insulate the pipes. You would put some of your equipment indoors, actually build a closure form. We don't do that in Texas because it's usually hot. So our that, and that gets spurs. back again, Mike, Michael, that gets back to the idea of weatherization or winterization. Other places do it because they're used to this. We don't do it. Yeah. If, right. it, if it's cold three months a year versus Texas, where it's cold one week, a decade, you're you think, oh, I don't need it. I mean, how often is it going to be cold? Yeah. And so we don't winterize, weatherize. We don't insulate. insulate. We don't add uh, heat guns or heating for thawing equipment, that kind of thing. We don't put our equipment inside enclosures. And so our gas system is older, creakier, above ground, more exposed. <clears throat> That's part of it. We also have liquids-rich production in Texas compared to many places. So a lot of uh, gas comes up with water and other fluids. So we have more things that can freeze when it gets cold. And that's what happened with natural gas. We had freeze-offs either right at the wellhead where water coming up with the gas froze 
and that clogs a well, or at the equipment right above ground where we do oil, gas, water separations, or in the pipelines, that kind of thing. These yeah. freeze-offs sealed the gas system, so some of the gas could not flow. That's one big problem, and that shut off a lot of supply of gas to power plants, which made it harder for those gas power plants to operate. And this happened in 2011. Another thing we have is that part of the natural gas system is actually operated by electricity. We have electric pumps or compressors or uh, flow meters and sensors and storage caverns or this kind of thing. And so when the power goes out, it partly turns off the gas system. Turning off the gas system turns off the gas plants, which makes the power outage even bigger. So we have gas supply constrained because of these freeze-offs, but also gas supply constrained because of the power outages. And this becomes a downward spiral or cascading crisis. So it's like, a, it's like a, a, a vicious cycle, right? Electricity outage causes gas outage, which causes electricity outage. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Or I like to say it in the energy water nexus, frozen water creates a gas shortage, creates a power outage, creates a bigger gas shortage, which creates a water shortage. Yeah. So these are all connected. I was surprised to learn talking to you last week that we don't have a supply of gas just hanging around for a moment like this. You know, we don't have six months supply hanging around that we have more of a just in time delivery system. We pull it out as we need it. And if you get caught off guard, if you don't prepare and things freeze, you don't have the ability to pull it out when you need it and you have no supply to draw from, right? We, we really don't have as much storage as say Northern climates do. They, they prepare yeah. for this because they expect they need a lot of fuels for heating right. in the winter. So they, they depend on storage. The storage is often dedicated or allocated to them. And yeah. we don't think of needing that in Texas because we have so much storage below ground, just pull it out of the ground when you need it. The ground handily is storing gas for us until it doesn't because of these freeze-offs. Another thing is some of these storage systems we do have, we do have some storage, they're electrically operated. And so if the power is out and you have to do demand response or turn off the power, you might lose some of the storage. And so this is a real challenge. We have such a robust gas system historically right. and generally we get the gas as we need it. Why store it? It's there waiting to be had. Yeah. You know, it's not just, I mean, the weatherization piece of this, which we've now talked about a bunch of times is obviously a factor because had there been preparation made for a moment like this, and of course we had this, big red flag 10 years ago. I was watching Bill Gates interviewed on Saturday night by Anderson Cooper, and he went right to the center of this. He said, this is not because of renewable dependency. This is natural gas plants largely that weren't weatherized. It cost money. The trade-off was made. It didn't work out. And it's tragic that has led to people dying, right? I was reminded of you saying to me last week that we prioritize cheapness over reliability in Texas, right? That's our ethic. We would have had to spend the money but we were not willing to spend the money, right? And we have to spend the money anyway. So do we wanna spend it along the way through improving the reliability of the energy system or do we wanna spend it when a disaster happens? Well, it's pay and, me now or pay me later, right? I mean, the exactly. fact is this is going to exceed, I've heard this, I think this is correct, that this is going to exceed Hurricane Harvey in terms of I, the cost of this, right? Oh, could you imagine? I mean, just all the food we have to replace. So each home probably has $100 more food they have to throw away from lost power. The right. damage to the power system, the lost economic activity. Um, there sort of There's so many things we could have done that we couldn't do economically. So the damage will be, in terms of explicit damage, quite high, but also missed economic opportunity quite high. Uh, yeah. So Hurricane Harvey was, what, $132 billion of damage, something like that. Hurricane Sandy was uh, almost up there. This will be like one of those events, possibly worse when it's all said and done. Right. And isn't the problem not just the weatherization question, but also in general aging infrastructure? I mean, really, in order for this to work, there's something like a gas supply chain that is premised on sequence of operations. And 
you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, this is the great cliche that we always use at moments like this, but it may be legitimate in this instance, it's a perfect storm, right? Like everything broke down and the aging infrastructure of our facilities is part of it that we haven't actually just invested to keep up, leaving aside weatherization. I think you're exactly right. And I think this is a warning sign for the other 49 states. Because right. in Texas, we actually like to invest in infrastructure more than most states, frankly. We built transmission lines just over a decade ago. We're proud of our state highway system. Like there are things we invest in. We actually kind of like to build stuff in Texas. Yeah. And if in Texas where we like to build stuff and we're rich, but we still can't quite keep up and invest in modernizing and updating our infrastructure, it could be bad in other states as well. And I think this is a warning sign that we're still relying on stuff we built 30 years ago or 100 yeah. years ago. It's time to invest again. And I would say just economically, this is a good way to get the COVID economy going again, right? Things have kind of staggered for a while. So this is right. good economically and good for reliability. So I think this is a creaking aging infrastructure yeah. problem on top of everything else. I mean, really, if you step back from it, this is the conversation we've been having for the last 10 years. You know, the economic um, health of this state has been in part based on our ability to attract people and businesses from other places to come to Texas. We promised them all these great things, but there has been this open issue of whether we have sufficient physical and social infrastructure to undergird all this growth. Population of the state's gonna grow from 29 million to 54 million in the next 30 years, according to the demographers um, optimistic scenarios. And I just wonder if, again, this is not just about infrastructure on the energy side, but roads, bridges, sewers, right? I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure that probably at this point could use a refresh. The amount of infrastructure we have to invest for every new person who enters Texas, either by birth or by immigration, right. is something like fifty dollars to $100,000 per person. Per person. That's, uh, you think it's like $10,000 for the water, $10,000 for the electricity. You have to worry yeah. about solid waste, the roads, everything you just mentioned, even libraries and public water fountains, you name it. So right. it's tens of thousands of dollars, maybe $100,000 per person. Yeah. You just said we might add another 25 million people. Let's say even if it's cheap, if it's 25 million people, let's say it's only $10,000 per person of infrastructure we have to invest. What is that, 250 billion? Am I doing my math correctly? Still a lot if of it's $100,000, it's a couple yeah. trillion for Texas alone over uh, over a couple of decades. And that we doesn't count this yeah and that doesn't count the social infrastructure costs things like public education and healthcare, right? Oh, I mean like yeah, I'm just talking about pipes and roads phys, and wires phys, and poles. Physical, yeah, yeah right. All right, That's so right. speaking speaking of reliability, let's let's go to the to the heart of this. Is ERCOT the villain here as many have made it out to be? I don't think ERCOT's the villain, and I'm pretty sympathetic to ERCOT for a couple of reasons. One is they ran the grid as they were required to by law. They don't have responsibility for requiring power plants to winterize. They don't have the responsibility for ensuring a reliable natural gas system. That's the Railroad Commission, and the winterizing of the power plants is up to the power plant operators. So ERCOT doesn't have the tools to require everything to work that way. They just have to require that the market operates fairly, and I think ERCOT did that part. If we're looking for reasons to criticize ERCOT, we could say that their emergency preparedness communications was lacking. We could have used more communication ahead of time about how rough things might get. I would say the governor's office was silent, so we could make the same sort of criticism there. So maybe ERCOT could have communicated better. Maybe they could have forecasted load a little bit better, but their load forecasts weren't that wrong. 
and their market design is kind of handed to them by other people, they execute it properly. I say, if we're looking for blame, I would say Railroad Commission has not done its part to keep the gas supply reliable. The gas suppliers haven't done their part. The power plants haven't done their part. And there's a lot of statewide emergency communications that could have been done that wasn't. I mean, Governor Abbott, I don't think I saw any communications from him telling us to get some extra water, charge up your batteries, top off your gasoline tanks, get ready. It could be rough. I don't remember that. And I'm sensitive to this because I was doing that. I was tweeting and telling people, hey, this could be rough. The grid could break. This is going to be a severe strain. And right. so those of us who are paying attention knew it really didn't catch us by surprise. So there's some plenty of criticism to go around. I think ERCOT's getting a lot of the blame. I don't think they deserve it, frankly. Well, you know, the, the fact is that during a, a hurricane, uh, run up to a hurricane, we get those kinds of messages routinely from the governor, from other people. You know, there's a hurricane coming. Let's kind of mobilize, get yourself ready. Yeah, I don't remember those kind of messages either. I think you're letting ERCOT off the hook maybe a little bit. Let me play that uh, game. Shouldn't ERCOT have had an in case of emergency break glass plan for this on the basis of what happened 10 years ago? Oh, yes. So, uh, by the way, this doesn't mean ERCOT's blameless. I just feel like they're getting all the blame. And, uh, and I think there's more blame to go around. Yeah. So perhaps ERCOT could have should have had better emergency plans. But then you have to go back to what tools they have. Uh, what tools could they have had in that toolkit for uh, breakdown? The main thing they do is shed load. They tell people to turn off load. That's yeah. their main tool. They did it. Now, um, I don't know what other levers they could have had. They don't have the authority to require power plants to winterize. And I think that's just outside the capacity. So I, there'll absolutely be a lot of scrutiny and a lot of investigation about whether ERCOT could have done something differently. And I'm sure there'll be areas for improvement. There's no doubt. But it doesn't look like that was the source of the major failure. Because in the end, they run the market. It's not like the market failed, like the, the bidding process worked. You might say the market failed in that we didn't have power. But the process of bidding for power and having transactions, which is a primary function, that worked okay. So let, let's see what the investigations bring out. Um, but I don't right, know but what do, but don't, you, but don't you see right now that the political class is setting ERCOT up to be the fall guy here? Yes, I mean, that's, so that's what's the happening. The political class is blaming wind and ERCOT when we should be blaming gas and the railroad commission. Let's be clear about that. And then you can guess by what right. I just said, who's behind the blame game to blame ERCOT and wind. Right. Uh, Michael, is having our own grid a dumb idea? Can we finally put to rest this question of, um, of our own grid being a, a, po a positive? You understand why we have our own grid. Independence is fundamental to who we are. And it's what we're about, ethos. we don't yeah. like to be regulated, especially don't like to be overregulated. And we don't want to be told what to do by anybody, especially California and the federal government. Yeah, the independence of the Texas grid, for the most part, has been very good for us. We have cheaper, cleaner power than most places. Our power gets cleaner with time, faster than most places. We can build things more quickly in Texas. We can do experiments with the integration of renewables. We can do things that other places can't do. So for the most part, it's good. However, when times are tough, we can't import power from our neighbors very easily. So we can't lean on yeah. others for help very regularly. And when they need help, we can't help them. So it makes us a bad neighbor and it means we can't lean on them. So I've been saying for about a decade, we should probably connect to the other grids. Here's why. 99.9% .9 of the time, we can pump really cheap, clean electrons from wind and solar to other states and make a lot of money connecting those other grids. And then 0.1% of the time when we need it, they can help us have reliability. So I think it'd be a huge financial boom and a really good reliability boom. That's yeah. why people like me have been saying this for a long time. That's the way the analysis pencils out. It's in conflict with our spirit as a state, as you said, 
But Governor Abbott just said a couple of days ago, maybe it's time to do regulations on winterization. Uh, Rick Perry said there is no free market in energy. And Ted Cruz said we need to have some regulations on costs. So we have some prominent Republicans saying maybe it's time to regulate the grid. And if we're giving up on market forces in Texas, well, and we're open to regulation, maybe it's time to connect to the other grids as well. How optimistic are you that that is uh, a long-term talk as opposed to short-term talk right at the, at the, at the head of the, of the crisis, and then time will pass, and then nothing happens? Because really, I mean, again, 10 years ago, there was all this you know, energy around, let's do something, and then nothing happened. I think most of it is short-term talk. I think yeah. that Republicans aren't really going to abandon market forces. I think they are not going to, going to suddenly adopt a regulatory environment as a way to go. So I believe that's short-term talk. But there are some long-term things that will happen. I think having two blackouts like this a decade apart will change the calculus for many power plant operators, that they will work on firm gas supplies, they will winterize their plants. I do think connecting the other grids will be a long-term conversation. By the way, that takes a decade or so. So we'll have to have that conversation slowly. But I think the economics of that will start to argue for itself. Right. And so just so we're clear, had we been connected to the other grids, we would have been able to prevent what happened last week. I think it would not have been as bad. We might have still had blackouts. So let's look at El Paso. El Paso, for the most part, did okay. They're connected to the Western grid. Uh, Parts of East Texas are connected to the Eastern grid. They had blackouts in Louisiana and Oklahoma too. So sometimes if you're connected to the other grids, well, they're struggling for power also. So you start moving power from like Iowa or Minnesota, somewhere far away. So connecting the other grids doesn't guarantee you don't have a problem, but it reduces the severity of the problem. And it might've been enough of a help that we could have avoided the real depth of the crisis. I was interested in an argument made by a writer in the Atlantic this weekend about the nature of freedom, because in Texas, we prioritize liberty and freedom, you know, ahead of every other thing. And the argument was basically, we think we're free by going it alone, but actually we're less free. This is what the writer said. The grid grants a certain kind of freedom, freedom from darkness, freedom from cold or heat, even freedom from boredom. There's freedom that knowing in knowing that anything you plug into the wall will turn on. There's freedom, too, in knowing that your house will stay inhabitable and your pipes won't burst. Texas's system is built on the idea that the liberty of companies to buy and sell electrons is greater and more dear than any freedom wrought by consistent power service. I, I like this idea that somehow one way to think about freedom is I come into my house, I turn on the lights, and the lights go on, and the absence of that actually robs me of my freedom, right? That's a different way to think yeah. about this you a freedom to not have to worry about it, right? To Because yeah. you're free from thinking about your utilities, you can be creative or do other things or have a job or take care of your, your family. Right. So there are different freedoms. And I say often in Texas, we have a lot of freedom. You have the freedom to die in the cold and the dark if you want, or you have freedom to work, yeah. but you also have freedom to die on the job because we have so many people who get hurt in their jobs in Texas compared to other states. Yeah. That's part of the trade-off with Texas. And there's a lot of upside to that in terms of economic vibrancy and that kind of thing. But we have expensive downsides that come in these big blips with these hurricanes and these freezes as well. Well, I can assure you that I did not feel very free last week and that a lot of people in the state of Texas did not feel very free. So I, I felt trapped. Yeah, you, people felt trapped. The, the opposite we were already in quarantine, right? And then you're stuck in your home because the roads are icy and you don't have heat, right. you don't have power. Well, I appreciate the fact before we got on this, uh, this uh, podcast, you referred to last week as snowvid. We that's had right. COVID and now we have SNOVID and that's, that's a, a, it's a, it's a great line, but oh man, it's, it's just so depressing. So uh, in the couple of minutes we have left, what are the lessons of this going forward? Let's say the governor or the CEO of ERCOT, whoever that is by the time people hear this, were to call you and say, Professor Weber, design the plan 
for the future that avoids a catastrophe on the order of what we just experienced? What's your answer? I think that, well, I've got several answers. The first thing to do is build the future of weather into your climate planning and your power plant planning and your system planning today. So we need to build to tomorrow's system for tomorrow's weather, not yesterday's weather. That's the first yep. thing. And that will imply winterizing your plants, which we know how to do and we can do. We need to improve building codes and efficiency in our homes so that we need less energy for heating. That's a big problem. We don't have really good efficiency codes for our buildings in Texas the way you do in, say, Northern Europe or California or other places. We need to keep building more diversity into our power structure. We are over-reliant on thermal plants and they failed us big time. And so let's build more other options. In particular, geothermal is a good option that we have underexplored in Texas. We need to interconnect to the Eastern and Western grids so we can make more money during the year and have more reliability when times are tough. And we need to think of new technologies at the end of the line like storage and microgrids and demand response so we have more tools in our toolkit when things are rough. So we have a variety of things we can do. Most of that's technical. Most of it we know how to do. We yeah. might need some policies or some market reforms. I think we can do that as well. This is a solvable problem. Hmm. All right, uh, Professor, I'm old enough to remember when I called you to do this podcast and we were just going to talk about the Biden administration. So um, I feel like I at least owe you a couple of questions on, as he, here at the end about what we were going to talk about originally, if that's all right. Um, sure. Um, does a first Biden term rather than a second Trump term give you confidence about our energy future or does it give you the willies? I am confident and I feel good about it. Uh, I think Trump actually was not good for energy and was not good for Texas energy. If you just look at the layoffs in the oil and gas sector in Texas alone, uh, the the term with Trump really didn't go well, right? So it was a every elected republic every elected Republican in Texas listening to this podcast just did a massive eye roll at the suggestion that Trump was not good for energy. I mean, the the oil and gas industry loves. Uh, Republicans and hates Democrats. They hated Obama, loved Trump. But oil and gas did better under Obama than Trump. They had uh, more growth in production. They had more profits. They had higher prices. They had more research support. They had a lot of things. What they got from Trump was less regulatory scrutiny, which a lot of them wanted. But that didn't yield better profits, growth, or employment, right? They had layoffs and losses and this kind of thing. Uh, 2020 was a bad year. Was that just COVID or was that part of it, the Trump phenomenon? And I say, well, we've had bad years for other reasons under Obama and oil and gas did okay. So I think um, the caricature of the politics isn't quite what people think, but certainly oil and gas prefers Republicans over Democrats. But the oil and gas industry performs better under Democrats than Republicans. This is one of the great ironies. What, what and, is it that, you know, but what is it specifically about the Biden plan for energy that gives you confidence Texas will benefit? Are there specific things that he's talked about? Remember during the campaign, there was some kerfuffle over, are we going to get rid of fracking? Are we going to reduce the emphasis on fracking? People in Texas got very nervous about this. It became an issue during the, during the election season. What about the Biden energy um, agenda gives you hope? There are a few specific things about the Biden agenda that are really good for Texas. Even the things that make people angry, like the Keystone Pipeline, is actually good for Texas in many ways because the Keystone Pipeline helps bring competitive oil from Canada to market. So it hurts a competitor. Even the, the, the ban on federal oil and gas leases, which will affect places like Colorado and New Mexico, don't hurt Texas because our production's on private lands. So again, he's hurting a competitor. The push to decarbonize the grid by 2035 is actually good for Texas because you can build wind and solar in Texas easier than in any other state. And so we should build it here. And then by the way, export those electrons to other states. So that's good for us. The push for R&D is good for us because a lot of the 
the energy research capabilities in the world are in Texas. That's good for us. The immigration ban was really hard on international oil and gas companies because they have employees in other countries who supervise um, their employees in Houston and they couldn't travel and go back and forth, but now they can travel. The improved relationship with Mexico is important because Mexico is one of our most important energy partners. All of these things Biden is doing, they might sound like they're bad for oil and gas, but they're actually good for Texas oil and gas. And they're good for Texas uh, energy forms other than oil and gas, like wind, solar, and geothermal. So I'm pretty optimistic that what he's doing will be good for Texas and good as a nation. And by the way, reducing CO2 emissions in the long run is good for Texas too, because we have a lot of risk from extreme weather events. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Michael Weber, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, the Catania Foundation, the Energy Foundation, the Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith. <laughs>